Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Anne Berg, and we're going to be talking about her historical verse novel, Flooded Requiem for Johnstown, as well as her favorite book for young readers, The Hundred Dresses by Eleanor Estes. I should point out that you might hear a few little electronic buzzes and chirps during the interview, uh, which with my limited technological abilities, I wasn't able to quite get rid of. Uh, But please don't let that distract you from what I think was a a really terrific discussion. Uh, Now, those of you who've listened to this podcast before know I like to start out with a poem before I get to the interview. Uh, But today I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. If you don't know, February 3rd is World Read Aloud Day, and Pam Allen, who I had the pleasure to talk to last year about this, as well as her favorite book, Anne of Green Gables, has returned to tell us all about this year's World Read Aloud Day. So today, we're welcoming back Pam Allen to Dream Gardens. Uh, Pam is a literacy educator and author and founder of Lit World, an advocacy group for children's rights as readers, writers, and learners, which you can find at www.litworld.org. And today, she is here to talk once again about World Read Aloud Day. Uh, Welcome back, Pam. Thanks again, Jody, for having me. Oh, absolutely. And I know I asked you this last time, but for listeners who are um, maybe hearing this for the first time or just want a little refresher, can you talk a little bit about what is World Read Aloud Day? Yes, World Read Aloud Day has become a global movement, a day to celebrate the power of reading to children and to people of all ages and to really just raise our voices for why reading is so important and especially why reading aloud is so important and just uniting and bringing people together around such a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful practice. And why is reading aloud so important? Why is it such a a key thing for uh, kids to grow up with? You know, it's an, it's an extraordinary tool, uh, both in terms of creating a sense of belonging and welcome to the world of reading for children from the youngest ages, but all the way through high school and beyond to invite them to be with you in the reading journey. Reading is such an interesting thing because it's something we tend to think of it's doing by ourselves. Um, it's not something also that's generally visible, so you can't see other people as they're doing it. So the read aloud brings that to life. It kind of makes reading more public and helps people to see what a shared journey that is. And the other thing about reading aloud is it provides comfort. And in, you know, these days, comfort really does matter, especially through all these months of children being separated from school and from friends and from all their usual routines. The daily read aloud ritual just provides that sense of comfort and stability and well-being Also, reading aloud is a way to actually marinate children in the beauty of language. So whatever language you choose to read in on World Read Aloud Day is great because you're really marinating children in grammar, in vocabulary, and just in a sheer understanding of all the different genres of literature. So it's just an incredibly beautiful, multidimensional, wonderful tool. And how did uh, World Read Aloud a Day come about, this sort of an, what's become an annual event? 
Yes. Well, it's kind of an incredible story, really. It's a simple story, but it was, uh, I was reading aloud in a classroom about 12 years ago and a child came up to me afterwards and said, Mrs. Allen, I wish we could do that every day. He said, but we have too many tests. We don't have time. And I said, but do you know what? The read aloud actually helps you perform better on tests that when you take a test and you've been read aloud to a lot, you actually do better. And he said, he looked at me very earnestly, he was just about seven years old, and he said, do you know what, when it's my birthday, I always get a lot of attention. He said, I think we should have a big party for the read aloud, and then we'll get a lot more attention. So I went back to my colleagues at Lit World, all of whom were very innovative, and always are, and they said, what a great idea, let's make a holiday called World Read Aloud Day, and we put it all together, we started sharing it out, and lo and behold, the great Children's book publisher, Scholastic, 100 years old this year, reached out and said, hey, we love that. That's right up our alley. That's our core value. Let's let's do that together. Let's amplify and scale it. So from that point, the World Read Aloud Day phenomenon has gone all around the world. And uh, it's just amazing. It, everybody joins in. And I just hope all your listeners will join us this year on February 3rd. Uh, so February 3rd, uh, actually, when this comes out, it'll be February 1st, so just a couple days uh, from that. And for, for listeners who are hearing this and are interested in, in participating, uh, what can they do to, to figure out how they can join in? Well, the great thing about World Read Aloud Day is you, and this is perfect, it's February 1st today, and you have two days to gear up, and what's great about it is it lasts all day, and uh, so you can you can celebrate at any point in time in the day. A um, few things, one is definitely visit scholastic.com slash World Read Aloud Day, because Scholastic has created incredible resources for World Read Aloud Day this year, and all of which are free. Um, and virtual. So they're down, you can down, easily download materials to read aloud if you don't have some easily available. Uh, there are some great activities to do with read alouds. There's the famous Lit World Reading Crown, uh, access to that activity, and lots of other fun treats and surprises. So go there right now and register, and you'll get that virtual kit. And the second thing to do is visit litworld.org and see how LitWorld is celebrating globally because they do a lot of very beautiful things in very surprising ways. So that's also great. And then finally, um, just feel free to read aloud from whether it's a, a book you love to a child you love or to an elder you love or to someone you don't know um, or to make a donation to an organization that might actually also amplify um, the power of reading or simply to go online and be with us on social media. Do the shout out to World Read Aloud Day with the hashtag, hashtag World Read Aloud Day, um, hashtag all your friends and family, tag people, do at your three friends and 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 do the rad challenge, the World Read Aloud Day challenge, hashtag that too, and tag three other people and ask them to read aloud to someone. Post a photo of yourself, even if you're reading aloud to your dog or some other, some being that will just accept your beautiful read aloud no matter what. And basically just join us on social media on that day. One thing I love about World Read Aloud Day is it's good news. And I think we love good news, uh, especially I think young people really need some good news. So I think it would be just wonderful if everybody listening could join us and, and tag three other people. Um, make sure you shout out to Scholastic and Lit World so we know you, you've been part of this with us this year. And 
share your photo or share a video or just share a little reminiscence even of remembering someone in your life who's read aloud to you. I always shout out to my grandmothers because they both of them were teachers and they both read to me all the time and they're gone long, long departed, but always remembered. And on World Read Aloud Day, I send a social media shout out to them too, because I think they would have loved social media had they been around and, uh, and just have fun with it. You know, it's joyous. It's joyous. And, uh, I just want you to have, have great fun and be with us. Uh, come find me, Pam Allen, uh, A-L-L-Y-N, um, on social media on that day. And, and there's lots of great things happening um, on Scholastic Facebook that day, too, as well as Lit World, people reading aloud, lots of surprise guests and, and great authors, of course. So it's it's all good, and uh, we need that good news. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, well, thank you so much, Pam, for uh, taking the time to to stop by and uh, talk about this again. And I think we may have to do this again next year. Always, I'm always ready, Jody, and I love that it's our tradition. And you've really helped us grow this movement big. So I consider you one of our advocates. I hope you always will be. My guest today is Anne Berg, author of such books as Unbound and Seraphina's Promise. Her latest book is the historical verse novel Flooded, Requiem for Johnstown. You can find her website at anneberg.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Anne. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, your 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 latest book is is a historical fiction, and it's uh, written in verse, and it's called A Flooded Requiem for Johnstown. you talk a little bit of what this book is about? Sure. It's actually about a, a rather major event in our American history, which is the Johnstown flood of 1889, a very big catastrophe, which might have been the greatest loss of life before September 11th, um, and something that I knew very little about before I started researching it. On uh, May 31st, 1889, the Johnstown, the, um, the dam above Johnstown burst and flooded the valley below killing thousands of people, 2,000, and I believe it was 2,229 people. I might be wrong on the number. It might be 2,009 or something, but more than 2,000. I was going to say, what was it about this event in particular that drew your attention, that caught your attention, and you thought, you know, I, I, this is something I really want to um, write a book about? This book actually started um, much differently than any other book that I that I write or that, you know, I usually come across something, I read something and I, it, I'm fascinated. And so I, I want to read more and more. And then, you know, I, that's one process that I follow. For this particular book, my brother-in-law, who's a um, professor at Shippensburg University, had invited me to come and talk about writing historical fiction and what is it and how do you get between the moments that, between the facts to get to the story that you want to share. And he wanted me to have a talk to his, actually I had a, a discussion and then a workshop with some of his students. They're a more general discussion. And uh, what I do, I'm a former teacher, as, as I know you are, and so I think you never forget that. <laughs> Somewhere embedded in your mind is always, you know, how do I reach people or how do I reach students. And so um, I, one thing I always try to do when I visit a school is to find something that's of interest to that particular student, not to talk in generalities, but to be as specific as I can. So I was actually 
I, I, I would say, you know, um, aggressively looking for something in the area of Pennsylvania where I was visiting that might be of particular interest to these students. And so naturally, Pennsylvania has a lots of history, but I wanted something different, something closer to them. And as it turns out, the, the Johnstown, I, you know, was reading about things that happened in Pennsylvania and the Johnstown flood. And, and Johnstown is really was only is only a couple of hours away from Shippensburg University where I was going to talk. So I decided that this would be a good lesson plan. It would be something that, you know, some of the students would already have visited maybe and read about in school or might come alive for them. And in preparing my lesson plan, I became so involved in the story itself that I, I just couldn't let it go. That this the story touches on a lot of the movers and shakers of the 19th century, like um, Andrew Carnegie and, and Henry Frick, and their involvement in, in what happened in the Johnstown flood. But what moved me most was these little morgue entries I had I came across. And so I wanted to learn more. And that's kind of the seed and how it started. So long after the class was over, I was still researching. And you had a chance to actually visit the site. I realize there's probably not too much to see, but actually the site. Yes. First, there's a museum. And the museum is in what was the library donated by um, Andrew Carnegie after the flood. And, And so there's a Johnstown Museum. And I went actually twice. I went the first time to absorb what I could. And then after I wrote the book, I I went a second time to make sure that I had really told the story as it should be told, kind of. You decided to write this in verse rather than uh, prose. What was what was the, the 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 thinking there? Was it did it start? Was it always something you wanted to do, or is it as you were um, thinking about it and develop and thinking about how to uh, express that 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 sort of came later on? No, it's kind of a, I, I think I kind of think of it like would Picasso's Blue Period might be my Amber verse period because <laughs> I. I have been writing verse novels now for quite a while, and it really started with my first verse novel, which was All the Broken Pieces, and it just so happened that when I sat down to write that story, it, it felt as if the, the the major character in that story was literally telling me his story and uh, telling me to get it down like he was sitting on my shoulder, and I found that writing a verse novel from a character's point of view gets rid of all the, ex- you know, the extras. And it's re- to, for me, it brings me right into the character. I'm able to crawl right into the character and speak as the character is speaking. So after all the broken, as a matter of fact, all the broken pieces, and one of the editors um, to whom it was submitted suggested I write it as a more traditional novel. And and when and I did the whole novel over again in a more traditional way with chapters and all. And and it was it, I lost the story in the novel. So. So, so since all the broken pieces, I've written other verse novels, and it just, for me, is working in in helping me to reach the character and the voice that I'm trying to find. So you focus on the voice in particular, and I know in verse, every word really counts. So you, you have to um, think about exactly what you're going to say, or so what the character uh, would say. And 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 that, I assume that's when you're, you're writing verse, you're you're trying to think of, you know, how does this voice, how do I want this voice to sound? Yeah, like it, it, what what happens is, and, and flooded is different because it's told in several voices. I have several characters speaking, and I even have our friend Andrew Carnegie speaking, and Clara Barton. They they make some, some quick little uh, visits to the to the novel, but 
I find that when I research and when I think about something, I just have, uh, uh, I don't really know, I can't really explain it, but I have like a connection and I feel like I'm channeling that person. So I'm really not thinking about how I'm actually writing it. I'm actually just putting my thoughts down as if I were that person, as if it, it's kind of like act, it's kind of like the theater, kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been involved in the theater, but you usually have some kind of like background and you're, even though you only have five lines, you've got a whole character behind you. That's kind of what happens when I'm, when I'm writing my verse, I'm writing, uh, I'm telling a story, but you know, I have this whole thing behind me of what, I'm a new person when I'm doing that. I'm, I'm not, I don't know that I'm explaining myself well. Oh, no, I understand what you mean. Uh, no, I'm just wondering about the process of writing. Do you sort of think, um, like, start with a particular person and write out all their stories? Do you do back and forth and then sort of figure out later on the order of things? I really just kind of, I, I, I wish I could have better ways to express this. Don't really think it all through. I don't, you know, I've been on, I've been in conferences and I've sat with authors who I know in the the last line before the first line, and then they try, you know, they just know they have to get there. I mean, that's a few times, but most of the time, I don't even know what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm telling you what's happening, what I'm feeling in the moment. So, so let me explain for flooded. Maybe be easier if I explain in concrete ways. Sure. I told you that they have the after the flood, there was nothing, and people had died and those that survived were keeping records of those that died. And lots of times all you had was a brief description, like a five-year-old pink dress or something like that. It was never, you know, there was really very little about them. So then I would be sitting and thinking about, you know, who would be wearing a pink dress? You know, who's, who does this belong to? Like I tried to drape, I tried to find the character that would have been draped in that in that fragment of clothes that was left. So, and then I would wait and I, you know, I, I kind of let it ferment in my mind, like who I'm thinking about and what their story could be. And then when it's in my mind already that there's some kind of story, I let that character tell me who, who they are. You know, um, there's a character in the book who, um, Daniel, there's, a whole, there's an entire family that died as 99 entire families died in this flood. And I believe that they they were never identified. So there was an entire family also that was found in the flood that had burned in a, in a subsequent fire from the flood. And so I, I kind of me, I kind of thought about this family, like what would a family of five be like, you know, an, you know, a working class family, you know, tr- just trying to get along. And so the, these characters come to me so one of the first speakers in the in the book is Daniel, and and so he's a little bit of a troublemaker kind of kid who who doesn't want to be in school, and you know, so th- it kind of works backwards. I, I you know I gather all the information, I let it sit with me, I let it ferment, and then in my mind, and I know I visited a class once, and somebody said you hear voices, so that's kind of how I do it. And then of course, with as with all writing, then characters bump into each other. I would say that. Characters, as I'm doing my research, characters are starting to like float in my mind. And then whatever characters speaks up first ends up becoming a major character and, and evolve the story around that person. Uh, would you, uh, could you uh, share part of your book with us? Sure. Here's an example of 
an unknown. In the in the um, the book flooded is uh, divided into three parts, and there's the story of Johnstown and where we meet all our characters, and then there's the flood and what happens to the characters. And sadly, not all of the characters survive. What I did was I matched some unknown survivors. They were actually written, you know, th this particular survivor is A143. And the description in the um, Master Book of the Dead for Johnstown was female, dark hair, blue eyes. So with that in my mind, let me tell you about A143. I know it was hard, but I'm glad you found me before Ma did. She suffered enough taking care of Pa, and when Pa died, taking care of me, cleaning other people's houses and wishing life were different. Even when I was little, I told her, when you and me grew up, we'd get married and have lots of children. You'll never be lonely again, I promised. Told her we'd build a house in the mountains with a room just for her, where she could rest her sore back and see puffy white clouds instead of floating bursts of soot and grime. I know you're heartbroken, Joe. Know you've got your own family, your own burdens, your own business to care for. But I hope you'll remember my ma. She'll be missing me and our house in the mountains and all the children you and me never had. I was wondering, there's, it must be, uh, you know, to sort of um, write with all these voices that suffered this particular thing. I don't know if that's it's sort of emotionally draining to <laughs> to uh, do this or did you or maybe not just the, the experience of giving them a voice was um, energizing in its own way. There were times that I, I felt sad and I, I yes, it, it was emotionally draining. But then but then, as you say, I felt like. I felt like I was giving them a voice that I, you know, when I say that in the, in my end notes that I hope I've honored them, these people that were forgotten, people that became nothing but an unknown, people that lost their voice, um, that maybe I gave them a voice and maybe hope to remind everyone how important each of our voices are. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, now, the the book you picked as one of your own particular favorites um, uh, for young readers is uh, The Hundred Dresses, uh, which is written by Eleanor Estes, and it was published in 19, originally published in 1944. For uh, I think this is familiar to a lot of people. For those readers who might not have a chance to uh, have read it yet, can you talk a little bit of what this book is about? Well, this book is about a girl who is is different than her classmates she she happens to be a polish girl in, in and um in a, in a town that has never heard anyone with the last name that sounds like hers and who who becomes because of her differentness than her otherness um becomes kind of an outcast and it's really just the explanation of it is so much heavier than the actual book the book is so light and easy to read but it's a story of childhood and sadly written in 1944 sadly it's the same issues we study today bullying and not fitting in and just being a little bit different and uh i was actually quite surprised how when i reread it before um talking to you how meaningful it continues to be do you remember the when you first came across this book i i don't but i i think that i myself must have been in third grade, having just moved to a new school and having had a, a kind of similar experience in that I was an Italian girl going from an all-Italian parish, going to a, a parish school that didn't have too many Italians in it. 
And I remember when I went to, it must, so it must have been my third grade year, maybe it was fourth grade, but I think it might have happened, might have been in third grade. And I remember somebody asking me what I was, and I didn't know what that meant. They're like, well, what are you? And I was like, I don't know, I'm a girl. You know, I didn't understand the question. And Angela came to me and said, they want to know, you know, what your nationality was. I, I still didn't know. I went home that day and asked my mom, what am I? And she said, you know, you're American. What? So I remembered identifying with Wanda and, her, and her, her, the fact that she was, was different and that her name that her name mattered. That made no sense to me. So I think I was at that right, just at that right age level. Now, the story is, like you said, it sort of revolves around Wanda and what happens to her. Although in many ways, she's sort of um, a character we just sort of see from the outside. We see other people's reaction to her. We just, I don't know if we get a sense of we learn a little bit about her, but not too much. I don't know if you have an idea of who she, would we get some idea of who she is as a person just from what other people say about her and what she says herself, which isn't too much, really. No, it isn't. It's a very rather simple story. And that struck me as different from, from the way stories are, ri- are written today in that it was very straightforward. And as you say, it was mostly what other, it, the story is told through another person's view of her. But we do learn about her. We learn about her pride and we learn about her kindness. And so, so I think you do learn about her, but you just learn about her in a different way than, than maybe we read books now, t- today. But but the theme, of course, is unchanged. I think in many ways this story, the 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 the, the main character is Maddie, uh, because she's the one who gets involved with the bullying at first, but it's, it really has second thoughts and is is almost afraid that you know if she doesn't join in that uh, you know that other people will turn on her, and so it's almost a lot of it is sort of her story, her kind of her arc that she goes through the story. No, I agree with you. I agree. If we say that a protagonist is the person who changes in the story, who develops in the story, then Maggie would be, would probably be, you're right, what the story is about. But the story is really about, in in my mind, but the story really tells us about what happens when we treat people a certain way. Well, it's interesting that, that, you know, that she she's a part of the reason she joins in is she's afraid that uh, because she's um you know she she's poor herself and she only i think has like one or two dresses and she's afraid that if she doesn't um join in that she'll be the the next target um just because of um her own particular situation right. which was which is truly the the uh, eternal message of bullying like you become that out of fear of of your you know your own fears create this bullying um, in the classroom or in the school. It, as a teacher, didn't you didn't you see kids always standing a little bit to the outside? I remember being aware of kids that that um, didn't actually fit in, and that sometimes an adult needs to help them to see. Oh yes, and definitely seen as a teacher, and also just my memories of right. when I was younger, and be, being being that kid, uh, very much so. So it was definitely something I was very familiar with, both on uh, observation and just uh, from my own experience. What I loved about a hundred dresses, though, what I what I really loved is that that Maggie for being unkind, or Peggy for being, you know, for all their unkindness and their teasing, they themselves were not 
bad children. You know, it's not a good, bad kind of thing. And and I think that the story um, really shows this, that it isn't, you know, there's a good guy and the bad guy. There are just children trying to find their way and using tools. And and I I believe sometimes needing, you know, needing to learn how best to get along. That it's not always doesn't have to be good guy, bad guy. And it starts almost by accident, just uh, I think Peggy's uh, one who sort of starts things going. And it's just uh, that uh, Wanda tells the story basically about these hundred right. uh, dresses, and uh, which it's seen a strange thing to, uh, to say. And uh, I guess Peggy particularly just can't, can't right. quite let it go. So it's, it sort of starts as a joke, but it's sort of a joke that. Uh, uh, just, just keeps on going. Which is, again, very typical of childhood. Like, you do something, <laughs> you didn't mean it to be the way it turned out, and then it just, everything just gets blown out of proportion. Maybe it's not just even childhood, maybe, but all of that, the touch real chords when you're even reading it today. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because the, the story is about these these hundred dresses that Wanda claimed she has, and, of course, later on, you know, these um Drawings are presented of these hundred dresses, and uh, although it's it's not clear whether she had these all along or it's something she developed, but all uh, I get the idea that you couldn't have just done it very quickly. Uh, that she, these hundred dresses. So I don't know. It's I'm trying to figure out you know, what exactly do these hundred dresses, these pictures of hundred dresses, uh, represent to Wanda and to the children. Um, is it just like this is what who Wanda really is? And sometimes you you've got to d- dig a little deeper towards a person to find out what's really going on. I think so. I I like to think that she maybe said she had a hundred dresses and then realized that she was lying and went home and started drawing so that what she said wasn't really a lie anymore, but just my own backstory. Now it's interesting too, is that, uh, that Wanda's story doesn't have, usually in a book, you know, about bullying, we have sort of a, a wrap on, up in some way. We do have uh, with the kids who remain, but Wanda's story, we don't know uh, what happens. Uh, it's, it's left sort of open-ended what actually, I mean, we know they they go away, but uh, what happens to her, what she makes of all this. And I'm just wondering, it's, it's kind of interesting, the author ends it, ends it that way with that sort of um, that uncertainty about uh, Wanda and why she, you, th- you think she made that particular choice as to having more sort of a traditional sort of resolution uh, where the kids get together and want it becomes, they become friends and all that. And that doesn't happen here. I think that um, the, the new version that I, that I just downloaded to make sure that I remembered all the names and things correctly um, had a forward from the do- from the author's daughter who said that it was probably based loosely on something that her mother had experienced about a girl, a poor girl that was, had been, being teased i wonder that that it's life is not all and then they lived happily ever after and then this is how so i i i wonder if that made for a true reflection of what happens in the incidents in our lives and even if you were to talk about this again if i were still teaching which i i can never get that out of my um, blood why why do you think we don't know that and i i think in my own mind we don't know because because how many things don't we know that we, you know, how many interactions with people do we have? And then we break off and we never find out. And in a, in a lot of ways, this is more realistic than, and then they all became friends in the end. 
which isn't really how it always goes. But what, what we do know is that that Peggy and Maggie um, learned from what they had done, which to me was satisfying. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the main lesson. Sometimes there's an uh, expectation in children's books that everything has to be wrapped up neatly and have a perfectly right, happy ending. Right. And like you said, it doesn't always work out that way. And and, and I think most children understand that uh, as well. They're more sophisticated sometimes than we give them credit for. I don't know. Sometimes I, I've been um, one of the criticisms of Seraphina's promise is because um, I don't ever say whether or not her she's with her father, her parents are separated by um, the earthquake. Her family is separated. And I don't really say in the end whether they how the family gets back together. I suggest that they do get back together in the end, but I don't really say it. And a lot of kids wrote to me and told me that wasn't very nice that they wanted to know for sure that Seraphina had, had met with her mother again. So I don't know. I think it depends on the temperament of the child, whether they can handle, you know, I, I, I believe I wrote back to this kid and said, I, 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 th- I, I shall try a little harder next time to give better. But I think that they met up. True. Every readers do have their own expectations as well. Yeah. Um, now I'm wondering, what is it about this? I mean, like I said, this is, book was originally came out in 1944, and it's very much a book that people still come back to, and again, and again, it's it's still um, used in the classroom. So, what is it about this book that uh, still resonates? I think you touched on a little bit that it's unfortunate <laughs> that this is, you know, still a relevant uh, topic. It is. It's a very relevant topic, and I think it's very accessible too because it isn't. It's not for some reason, it, I, I, and I I don't know because I don't read a lot of fourth grade or third grade actual books. It's very simple and straightforward, and very very accessible. We we know what's happening in the story, and there's a lot of telling and not showing kind of thing, revealing characters and things like that. Which I don't know whether it's because I'm usually writing now middle grade that I, there are a lot more strings attached to to what I write. But this is very, very straightforward. And I think that it's very accessible. It would be accessible. And and I'm sure that to me, it was accessible. Like, to me, it was like reading my own story. It was was exactly her name. You know, to me, that that's what I hooked onto. And I think probably why I remembered it. Although I didn't remember her, her name. I just remembered that it was her name that brought attention to herself. So, um, I think because, like I said, there are still kids that hug the the brick wall at recess. Well, not at this very time, but there are. And so I think that there's still need to, to point out it doesn't make you bad if you are not including friends. But let's think about it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but let's think about this. So it's really a great vehicle to discuss without pointing fingers. So you think something that uh, uh, teachers could possibly use as a way to talk about bullying, both as for kids who observe this going on or in kids who are the objects of the bullying as well? Yes, I absolutely think. And because it is so simple and because it is um, so straightforward and you don't have to get into the whole, there's not a lot of, I guess there is symbolism because it's the dress, but I there's not a lot. You don't have to dig too deep to find the heart of the story, and so that's why I think it would be it, it would be great in the classroom, um, even as a read aloud for to have the teacher read it to the students, which I used to like to do. You want to go back to teaching. Uh, is there a passage from the book that you wanted to share? One, one thing that I do remember that I loved. I loved that it actually captured what 
kids rushing to school, kids being late for school, kids. I, I thought that so so little has changed in, in a whole world that has changed. I'll just read what what she said. How many dresses did you say you had hanging in your closet? A hundred, said Wanda. A hundred, exclaimed all the girls incredulously. And the little girls would stop playing hopscotch and listen. Yeah, a hundred, all lined up, said Wanda. Then her thin lips drew together in silence. What are they like? All silk, I bet, said Peggy. Yeah, all silk, all colors. Velvet, too? Yeah, velvet. Velvet. A hundred dresses, repeated Wanda stolidly, all lined up in my closet. Then they let her go. And then before she'd gone very far, they couldn't help bursting into shrieks and peals of laughter. One hundred dresses. Obviously, the only dress Wanda had was the blue one she wore every day. So what did she say she had a hundred dresses for? And then I would look up and ask my students, why do you think she said that? And uh, I, and that's it, something I've thought about, too, and I'm not sure I have a very good answer as to. Um, but sometimes kids will just say things because, um, you know, uh, it, it seems like the thing to say at the time. And then they sort of feel a little stuck about that. But it, it, it's it, the, the dialogue sounds very interesting that, uh, you know, the, the sort of nobody actually calling out, but actually sort of pushing rather than right, uh, they're right. pushing, you know, pushing a little bit rather than calling out. And that's, that sounds very familiar to me. Yes. So I, I, I do think that it would, it would resonate with kids today, even though it's decades old. Well, thank you, Anne, for uh, both talking to me about um, your own book, uh, Flooded Requiem for Johnstown, and for taking the time to talk to me and give me a chance to reread The Hundred Dresses and talk to me about it and about bullying and bullying in general and what we can do with kids. Uh, but, but, but in particular, you know, uh, this book and how it's still so unfortunately relevant today. One of these days, we'll, we'll make a world where it won't be. <laughs> You can find Anne's website at annberg.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodyleemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. Keep reading.